Welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. I'm Pete Clark, your host, The Whispers Guy. It appears that work expands to the time that we give it, and I started to explore how I was investing my time and effort, particularly on Fridays. It's evolved to an explanation and experiment with time, energy, attention and identity, and a mindset shift from I have to to I choose to. So if you're interested in exploring some changes to the way that you invest your time and your energy, if you'd like some tips on the way as you make some changes perhaps to your identity, if you would like the freedom of I choose to, away from I have to, then this is the podcast for you. So welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of the Freedom Fridays podcast episode 38, which is part two of the conversation I had with uh, a friend, colleague, and all-round awesome facilitator, Marcus Crow. The second part of our conversation deals a little bit more with clients and leaders and their teams and any early warning signals to the success or failure of any change initiatives. Enjoy the conversation for the Freedom Fridays podcast. I'm keen for your insights. When you're working with clients, prospective clients and continuing clients, are there any early warning signals for you that hint as to whether they're going to, I don't mean comply with what you're telling them, but at least be willing to lean into some of the things that you suggest or not. Are there any early warning signals that give you a hint one way or the other? Do you mean that they're going to embrace whatever yeah ideas. or at least a degree of what you're suggesting because you've seen it across three sectors and six organizations so you kind of know these three things are probably going to help you get you more from where you are to where you say you want to be but i'm just sensing there's not a willingness or there's not a buy-in or you don't have the infrastructure or it's not the right time or you don't have the money or you don't have the right team in place or the opposite. Are there any early warning signals that help you with that? I think it, well, I suppose listening to your question, it depends what you mean by um, adopt or take up the ideas, right? Because often we think of our work as being something that is, um, a means to an end. We go in in order to get something to happen after we've left. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I like to sort of call that out when we're sitting down together and, I was, um, and sort of say sometimes the means is the end. So the sheer fact of sitting down together is the thing that they need to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I sat with a leadership team today that's dealing with the transition of a of a, an, an older founder who wants to sort of step back and the next generation come through, but nervousness about their capacity to replace the, you know, his 45 years in this beautiful business. And, and then there, you know, how do we navigate this, this transition? And, and while there's always talk about this sort of thing that what we're going to do is, and what we'll set up is, and in the future, what we'll do is actually the most of the value I was providing was, was in the dialogue that, we were brokering around around this table. And and so to to your question then, what I'm looking for is the extent to which they have faith in the idea of engaging with with me. Um, And and the 
the corollary to that in the literature is the work on common factors in, in for clinicians, which talks about the therapeutic alliance and the so-called placebo effect, which is the client's willingness to engage in the process that's being undertaken. That's a large part of the therapeutic outcome. It's not all of it, but it's a large part of it. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, as we observe our professional field, that's why you can meet facilitators who who just are charming and, and, and gorgeous and build rapport readily and instantly and, and with a wide range of people. And so they win, they build themselves up a lovely business, even though they may not necessarily have a single, you know, technical framework that they've been schooled in or practiced in for years. They don't, they're just adorable and lovely and listen well and ask great questions and wonderful conversationalists and very responsive. Um, and so that's what I'm looking for is the, is their willingness and, and, preparedness to lean in to the whole idea of me now for example one of the clues is do they arrive on time to the session you know or do they walk in late still on the phone what are we doing what you know like that's a clue right to the extent to which how they're thinking about what this thing is that we're doing together so I guess that's what I'm that's what I'm looking out for um you know we've all been doing it long enough now to know it's not about the you know, rolling up the flip charts and all the intentions. And I think you set yourself up, all of us do, we as consultants, them as our clients, that, you know, this idealised future that we're going to have after this consulting engagement is over. Um, I, I sort of over the years, I've relaxed the, the idea of what success looks like by saying, let's agree a couple of experiments we're going to run. And then at the end of that, we'll see how that is. You know, if you need to change the way you guys are connecting on a weekly, monthly, fortnightly basis, well, let's try it for a fortnight. Mm. And let's, so let's at least get our diaries out now. Let's pick when's the next one, right? What day? Who's doing it? Who's hosting it? What's the venue? You know, we make, we, and we, we cement in the first next one, knowing that there'll be a one after that, but we'll decide on that one after this yep. one. Let's do yep. this one first. Yeah. It's, it's sort of been easy to help exec teams do new things because if you say, we're going to transform entirely how you work from this point forward, People go, no, you're not. And then you go, okay, next month, we're going to try a different rhythm and routine. Yeah. Um, who's prepared to give that a go for one round? And everyone go, you can't, like, you can't argue with that, right? Well, yeah. you can, I suppose. But, you know, most people go, yeah, all right. Even if they're determined to revert to the original format after putting up with one, but often mm-hmm. they go to the one and they go, actually, you know, generally, that was a little bit better. Sometimes it's better just because it's different. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not that it, in itself, it's a better format. They just like the fact that they've, you know, upended their routines a bit. So mm. that's what I'm looking for is their, their willing, their level of enthusiasm for the whole idea of having a me in the room and sitting together to do it all. Yeah. It, it's fascinating you've said that, Marcus, because I've got no quant around this at all. It's all kind of my fellow experience. I almost every situation with a client talk about if there's a willingness on your part and a connection between you and I, that's 60% of the way. Now, it's obviously made up numbers, but that's been my felt experience. If they're willing to have me sit with them, sometimes ahead, sometimes behind, sometimes alongside, and there's a willingness on their part to do some uncomfortable, unknown work in whatever vein that might look like, that usually is the precursor to probable progress. Uh, spot on. I mean, and, and you can go to the literature on it with you know, Bruce Wampol's work on common factors. I mean, it's there going, we looked at different modalities, therapists who do, um, either the same thing. So they might've all been CBT therapists or they might've all been emotion-focused therapy therapists or Gestalt or Freudian psychoanalysts. Um, and so they hold constant the modality and then all that's changing is the, is the therapist. 
And so they're looking for so-called therapist effects. We might call them consultant effects or, um, you know, and that's why you might say sadly, um, because it doesn't feel very pure. Um, Or you might say gladly, because it's delightfully accessible for, for people in the field, is that, you know, our capacity to have a chemistry with the client is a massive part of the extent to which we can be compelling. It's true of teachers. It's true of so many fields where, you know, even in education, you know, something magical happens when a great teacher lands in a classroom with willing, willing students. And God knows we've tried, but we still really don't know what it is. You kind of go, how come Mrs. Martineau's music class, to give an example from my children's school, how come they just loved her and they loved that class and they lined up before the door opened and they stayed after the bell went what was it about her? Yeah. You know? I, I'm one that I think there's a little bit of magic or X factor in that. And, you know, when you find out what the trick is, you kind of go, oh. Well, but that's it, right? He, and that's what Bruce Wampol tried to do is going, I'm trying to work out what the X factor is. And, you know, as, as clinical as they could make it, it's this idea of therapeutic alliance, um, the placebo effect, which is the client's willingness to believe in the course of action that's being undertaken. Um you know, the so-called common factors because they're common yeah. to every yeah. approach regardless of what the approach is. Interesting. Um, have you ever sacked a client? Yeah, not in the way ad agencies did. You remember when ad <laughs> agencies went through this? I don't know. I remember it. I don't know. Maybe it's been, it's probably gone on for a lot longer than, than when I came across it. But I came across it as a young marketer before I started this work where an ad agency would, for the purposes of the PR of doing it, sack a client as a way of saying we're so good we don't need this mid-level client anymore so we've resigned their work in order to pitch for their better quality competitors work you know so to take a i don't know a car brand you know you might sack ford publicly because you want to pitch for mercedes or something right um um and i've never done that um my father drummed into me the sheer good fortune of a client inviting you for the privilege of working inside their business and to receive the education that that experience will provide you and to have an, a complete humility at all times. And it's a big deal um, for me and in our firm to be always appreciative of the invitations we are afforded. They don't need to invite us in and they do. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't need to disclose their, their most intimate professional goings on and they do it's an absolute privilege to do what we do and that we get invited to do it never stops that being true and and i've never and would never fire a client um instead we might use them as a vehicle if it were difficult we might use them as a vehicle for our own professional development to say what are we learning about our craft through this experience of working with this challenging context where we're finding some of our normal go-to plays aren't maybe working as well, or we find ourselves in some frictional dialogue from time to time, you know, and in the spirit of there's no such thing as a difficult group, there's only an inflexible consultant. Yep. Um, if you take that stance, then it leaves you open to go, how do I evolve how we turn up to this so that we can do a better job? I, I Frankly, I think they're a, they're a professional blessing because that's how you get to the edge of your development to go, geez, I've not worked with this one before. How do I do this? Yep, um, I'm so with you welcoming those disruptors, the, the RNAs, as we used to call them, showing up. They teach us more about ourselves than most other clients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's like, you know, if, if, if someone in, in, in a craft view, right? If you take a craft view, you get fascinated by your medium. 
So if, you would, if you're a wood turner and a piece of wood comes along that the lathe bites on and you go, well, okay, what happened there? You don't go stupid lathe, stupid wood. You go, well, hang on a minute. What did I miss there? What's this yeah. a different piece of wood? What have I done? Is the temperature different? Is the speed different? Did I, did I hold it on the wrong angle or have I worked with this type? Mm. They get curious about, you know, as would a cardiologist who's come across a, you know, a patient where they go, well, I actually did the normal course of treatment and it didn't work. Well, I wonder, and instead of going, well, stupid person, they should have, instead they go, whoa, whoa, what happened there? What have I missed? Mm. What's, what's present in this case that I'm not appreciating, which is mean my diagnosis is ignoring something that's important. Mm. Hey, Marcus, I would love to ask you about the firm that you've got. So the current business that you're on with a, a couple of people, you named it 10,000 Hours, which I'm assuming is on the back of the, <laughs> the often misquoted 10,000 hours from one of Gladwell's books. Could you just explain a little bit, you know, the short version of what that is and bust any myths that you constantly hear about this 10,000 hours rule? Well, the, 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 first, the first thing that I, that I didn't appreciate, which I now do, is that a lot of people haven't heard of it. Um, people really? in the field have heard of it, but, would, but it, you know, I would find anecdotally, 50% of people we come across go, I don't know what the 10,000 hour rule is. Now, wow. In any workshop, there's always someone who does know about it. Yeah. They'll always say, well, who can answer Craig's question about what's with the 10,000 hour thing? And so there's normally someone who says, yes, it was Malcolm Gladwell who wrote the book. Um, as ever, like Daniel Goldman, making Mayer and Salovey's EQ work famous, you know, Gladwell made Anders Ericsson's work famous, yep. you know, being the journalist who wrote about the academic's findings. Um, and the very simple rule, it's not the number. Uh, the number's what caught on because it's a lovely fat round number. It's catchy. Yeah. Um, but his point was, and he's always made when it's examined properly, that it's around about a number like that. Um, but what's important is the content of the hours, not the hours themselves. Yeah. And so that the content of the hours is occupied with something called deliberate practice, mm -hmm. which is working at your edge of competence in presence of an ability to get um, detailed and immediate corrective feedback um, with the capacity to grow and develop. So for people who like the idea of um, um, Csikszentmihalyi's flow, it's just past that. It's not fun. Um, deliberate practices. And that's why you meet a 12-year-old who plays tennis who's better than a 55-year-old who's played Tuesday night for the last 40 years because the 12-year-olds on their edge, every time they get on the court, the coach sets up a couple of cones, right? Serve down the tee, serve out wide, put a kick serve on. I want you to serve to the back end on. Whereas the Tuesday night guy or gal is just hitting balls. And that's why with lots more hours of tennis, in the case of the Tuesday night club player, they get killed by a 12-year-old who's been playing it for a quarter of the time, who's on the edge of their competence the entire way, the whole time. Mm. Um, that's the point. So we built the firm, you know, my co-founder, Chris Maxwell and I, uh, long story short, had dinner on or around our 40th birthdays, did the maths at the, at the Meat and Wine Co down at um, South Bank there in Melbourne one night, turned the napkin over, got the Sharpie marker out that was in our pocket from the day's workshop and sort of <laughs> figured out the maths together and went, oh, wow, maybe we've done our 10,000 hours. Um, anyway, so from there, we then, you know, registered the domain name and, and you know, and off we went. So, so the, it, the firm is anchored around deliberate practice, meaning we've got to get the learning below the neck. It's a real problem in our industry because it's very easy to understand conceptually our ideas. They're not, they're not intellectually sophisticated, um, but they're behaviourally tricky. And so we've got to get the learning beneath their cognition so that they're actually doing it, trying it, experimenting with it and so on. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Thank you, Marcus. Um, and hey, I'm conscious of time. Um, really grateful for, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I don't really care what people say about <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a great way to do it. I, I really enjoyed it, right? They're um, going, I don't care what people think. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. So it's, this is all for me anyway. Um, I'm going to finish, if, I, if you don't mind, with a couple of kind of binary questions and I'll just get your surprise response to that and then we'll, we'll close it off for this conversation. And you wouldn't give me um, these in advance, would you? I had, you you've got it. You want, the, you want the spontaneous response. I do. I do want the spontaneous response. So um, sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Oh, I hate I, sunset with a drink. Beautiful, but sunrise to be in front of the day. Sunrise. Cool. All right, sunrise. Cool. Um, so picking up on your point about learning below the neck, heart or gut? Uh, gut. Okay. Um, a maxim that you say you like to live by, but don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, you are what you eat. <laughs> which at the moment means I'm a bag of crisps and, um, and goat's cheese. That's terrible. What's your favourite Aussie word? Oh. Favourite Aussie, Aussie word. Uh, look, what's coming to my head, it's not my favourite word, but I've just thought of beauty and, and, and ripper. And I never say either of those words, but they've just come into my head. Um, <laughs> But it, um, it, maybe the, I think the idea in she'll be right, mate, um, yeah. or no worries, mate, it, it's not a word, it's a phrase, but I, I think what that connotes is a, a sense of agency about the future. There's something about the idea that says, you know what, whatever happens, we're going to handle this. And I think there's a useful agentic optimism in the idea of going, she'll be right, mate. You know, now, now, which means, you know, we're going to handle it. Um, yeah. I, quite like, I quite like what that phrase is trying to do. I love your explanation. And final question for me, a book that's changed your life. <sighs> um, look, oh, and I know all your guests say, oh, but Pete, so many, so many. Um, probably, and I'm going to credit my beautiful co-founder, Chris Maxwell, with this. He ripped into me years ago. He said, mate, you're reading managerial rags read proper academic literature where you can, you know, we, and he really ripped into me one day and I'll never forget the little sort of jibing that he, that he gave me, but it pointed to a book and it's actually a textbook, Strategic Management and Organisational Dynamics. It's in, it's, it's got seventh editions. It's, it's, it's again, it's a Ralph Stacey um, weighty tomb, but w- what it does, it's a very intelligent commentary on what's actually going on in organisations. So it, it looks at power. It looks at history. It looks at patterns of um, relating uh, and and that really that pointed me then to a raft of other literature that sort of came off the back of reading that one. Um, and I'm really grateful for, frankly, for Chris to get in my face and saying you got to read better stuff. Um, and then that being where we went first, and from there went lots of other places as well. Cool, Marcus, you've been an extremely generous with your opinion guests. So I appreciate that. <laughs> that may not be a good thing, Pete. Let's, well, let's be clear. That could be I, I think it is. If I think about, you know, cognitive diversity and people with different views, I think I, I'm welcoming more of it. So really appreciate your time, your transparency, and and probably, and, and also your humility, which I, it's not that I didn't expect that, but that that's come through for me in that fact, you know, maybe, maybe this, maybe that. I, I'm just going to wait and see and play it out and she'll be right, mate. Well, you know, to, to end on a little quick anecdote from a colleague, we both enjoyed working with Gavin. Um, and if, if he's listening to this, you know, he should know that this has stayed with me. He, he 
he used to he had done time working in the very early years of his career in acting and he he had something at a job interview where they put down a dolphin like a photo of a dolphin a doctor and an actor or something and the question was who's the most important and it was a it was a it was a trap right it was a trap for to watch out for the hubris of an actor going oh but the arts are everything that's what's important because if we don't have the arts then and the whole point of the right answer was dolphin right or bees I think it was bees right because if we don't have the bees and we don't have the ecosystem we don't have this and the whole thing collapses and it was designed to just say hey for god's sake have some humility right what you're doing here it, and I think we're very similar what we do is is lovely I think we're very lucky to do very the lovely. kinds of things we do and I think that professional humility of going let's face it every nurse every first responder, they're all doing something every day that frankly is far more important than anything we do. What we do is important and is useful, but yeah. keep the humility of where, you know, where we professionally probably sit. Uh, and some people might disagree with me on that, but I think it's grounding to keep that in mind as we go about doing what is wonderful work with yeah. fascinating people. I agree. I've learned that lesson sometimes harshly over the years, not to take myself so seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Marcus, it's been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pete. Good fun.